0: novels, most of them start pretty much the same way. The opening scene to the book or the opening scene to the the movie is a detective or the main character comes up and he's surveying the scene and quite frequently a police officer has already been there and they've done something like this. They've taken a look at the scene and they mark it off with this caution tape because they don't want somebody to come in and disturb the evidence until the detective comes and can figure out what's happened. And so they come and they examine what's happened in this particular area and then they try to draw some conclusions about what may have happened that they hadn't actually seen That's exactly what's happening here today. Mary comes across this scene and we're invited with her to come to this scene that's sort of been marked off with some caution tape. This empty tomb. And the reason I think it's helpful to have this caution tape up here as a reminder because depending on your conclusion of what actually happened at the empty tomb could totally transform your life. So we want to come to this scene with some caution. We want to be good detectives and see if we can see what happened at this scene using Mary's eyes. But there's a great deal of caution in this sermon and in this text because depending on what you conclude happened at the empty tomb, if a man, a God-man, actually broke out of the tomb and is alive and active in this world and in your life, then it's going to make a big, big difference on how you think about your life, how you think about eternity, and how do you think about reality. So as we come to the text today in Matthew or John chapter 20, uh, we're looking at this particular event through the eyes of Mary. And I think we'll see the event unfold in three different stages. The first stage is Mary has a massive collision At the empty tomb. And the collision creates a number, particular question and also some confusion, as we'll see. So at this point, this is like the point of impact for Mary. We have a, a massive collision with Mary and Christ. The second thing that we have, or the second stage, is there's a moment of clarity. Verse 16, that she sees something she hadn't seen before. And then verse 17, 18, and 19, uh, there's a commission. So there's a collision, there's a moment of clarity, and then there's a commission. So let's look at it in these ways. And I'm going to spend almost the whole sermon on just this first point, this collision. We're we're gathering evidence at this scene to see what's happened. You might say for Mary, this is uh, ground zero. This is for Mary where her horizontal understanding of life and reality intersects a vertical understanding that there's a living and active God. And so she reaches this point, and this massive explosion takes place. And she has a number of questions, and she's confused. First thing that's helpful to us is just to think about who Mary was Mary, uh, we don't know a lot about her from uh, the Bible. The most that we know about her comes actually from the gospel writer Luke in chapter 8. And he states this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. So, we have this band of people. It's Jesus at the center. There's 12 disciples around him. And then there's some other people. Some of those people at least include women. And there's a certain uh, woman there named Mary, and she's from a particular ta- town called Magdala. And so she's Mary Magdalene. And somewhere along the, this way, Jesus encountered her, and she was full of demons seven to be precise. Now, I don't know if Luke is trying to give a specific number to what he saw in Mary, seven, or he's using this number with a a bigger uh, impact. You remember that in the Bible, the number seven generally represents the idea of completion or fullness. Creation happened in Seven days when Peter came to Jesus, remember, he said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times that that'd be the full amount of forgiveness that one should really offer someone. And so maybe Luke is just saying here was a woman and who could count how many problems she had. She was just full of problems. She was like a a mental patient. That just gotten cut loose. You, you have this picture of Legion in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. This, this man who's full of demons. Who knows how many, but he's full of problems. And Mary is full of problems. I don't know if you've met someone that you thought, you know, there's something disturbing about this person. Now, I'm not referring to your spouse at this particular moment. But, you know, you come across somebody that you thought, this person just isn't right. And maybe I can't quite put my finger on it, but it seems creepy to me. It it feels odd. I, w- I wouldn't trust this person with, with myself or anything else valuable. Well, that's the kind of picture that you have of Mary. And I think it's helpful to have a real clear picture of her because she gets to be the person who's the first eyewitness to the resurrection. And one of the reasons that's so important is because we live in a day of a lot of skepticism that what really did happen on this scene? Did somebody actually come out of a tomb or was it just sort of a feeling or a sensation or I had a dream or or I really realized it as a disciple, I'd given my life to this person who did get crucified and now to sort of perpetuate something That has ended. I'll just make up a story and say. Well he actually came out of the tomb. And lots of people believe that. And wrestle with that. Now if it were true. That the disciples really knew. That Jesus didn't come out of a tomb. And they were just trying to. Make something up sort of to. To keep their ministry going. And they were making up a story. To be sure. The last thing. That a first-century male would have decided to write down was that the first eyewitness was a lunatic woman. There's no way if they were just making it up, they would say, "Okay, now we've got to have somebody who's got credibility. We've got to have somebody who's who's got some weight behind them." So when they're, they're the first witness, who are we going to choose? How about Mary? She's wild. There's no way they would have chosen Mary. They would have chosen themselves. They would have chosen somebody who had some kind of stature. And yet when we come on this scene, we see that Jesus is revealing himself to somebody that is really of no account, no particular name, no stature. And so nobody would have believed Mary, of course, unless it actually happened. So Mary is the first eyewitness. She's the first evangelist. She's this unusual choice by Jesus. But really, you know, it's not that unusual if you think about it. It seems to me that God throughout the Bible, and Jesus particularly in the New Testament, He's always choosing people that seem to be unlikely candidates. People that that don't bring that much to the table with them to be the people who are going to share Christ. And maybe it's somehow... The, the more somebody feels like they're bringing to the table that they have to offer, the more that gets in the way. And so Mary comes saying, I really don't have anything. And Jesus says, great, you are a perfect candidate. Because then you're just going to tell what Christ has done to you. You're not going to bring anything in of yourself. It reminds me of this um, quote from the biographer of William Carey. William Carey was is known as the father of modern missions. And he lived in England And he moved to India. And that really created a spur for missions in the 1800s. And this is what one of his biographers said. William Carey was an impoverished shoemaker, an unlikely candidate for greatness. He was a man, apart from his unqualified commitment to God, no doubt would have lived a very mediocre existence. Very mediocre. A shoemaker who wasn't making ends meet. Becomes the father of modern missions. A woman who was full of demons. Somebody who belonged in some sort of mental ward. She becomes the first eyewitness to the resurrection. The next thing we see in this text. Just looking through Mary's eyes. Is this great collision creates a question. And it gets asked two different times. Once by the angels. And then once by Christ. They say this. Why are you weeping? And then Jesus adds. Whom are you seeking? I don't think it was a question that the angels and Jesus were just sort of slow thinkers. And they're scratching their head going, well, we just can't figure this woman out. I think they knew why she might be weeping. And I think it's a question really to help Mary think. Think, Mary. You're you're weeping. You're looking. What are you looking for? Think. You've been in this band that's been going around with Jesus for maybe a year or two. No doubt you have heard Jesus say something like this. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and He must be killed. And on the third day, He will rise again. Mary, think. It's the third day. You're looking for somebody that's dead. Is there any other possibility, Mary? Think. Who are you looking for? Why is it that you're crying? You've come to this scene. Think. Think about what's been said. Think about the other possibilities right here. You see this horizontal understanding of Mary's life is now in this massive collision with the vertical reality that God has visited the planet. And he has taken our sins and he's broke open out of the tomb. And Mary just couldn't grasp that. And Jesus and the angels are saying, just think, think, Mary. We shouldn't be surprised at this. And I absolutely love the way Jesus approaches Mary because it's the way he approaches so many of us and so many people in the Bible. You very rarely come across Jesus in the New Testament in a way that seems pushy. In a way that sort of seems Bible-thumping. And you've got to get this information. Most of the time he seems to be coming around somebody and he's... Almost always asking questions. What do you think? How do you see things? Just like he does with Mary. It reminds me of Isaiah 118 where God says to the Israelites, come now, let us reason together. God comes in and says, "Okay, let's just reason together. Let's think together. Let's ask some questions and see if we can get to the end here. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He calls Jesus a good teacher. And then Jesus says, but why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Think. Think, rich young ruler. There's only one good person, and that's God. And you have come, and you've looked at me, and you say, you're a good teacher. Think. Think, young man. Do you think I'm just a good man or am I the God man? Caesarea Philippi is a place that where there was a lot of idolatry. Jesus takes his disciples to this city and he stands up, so to speak, on a stage against all these idols and all these other gods. And then he asks his disciples, What? Who do you say that I am? Think, guys. Here's your culture. Here's what everybody's worshiping. Here's what everybody's bowing down to. Now, I'm asking you to bow down to me. Am I just another one of these gods or am I something totally different? Who do you say that I am? Jesus approaches the man who's been an invalid for 38 years and asks him this question. Terribly insensitive on one level. The man's been lying by a pool for 38 years and he can't seem to get into this pool to get healed. And what does Jesus say? You want to get well? I mean, you think the man might not have wanted to get well? Or was was there some bigger question? Think, man. Think. What's your real problem? What's the biggest problem you're dealing with In your life? Is it just that your legs don't work? Or do you have a heart condition that really you need to be baptized in a different way? Think. Do you really want to get well? Jesus stands up at the religious feast. Is anyone thirsty? When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he tells his followers, behold, the Lamb of God. And then two of John's disciples follow after Jesus. And Jesus turns and says, who are you looking for? Who are you coming after? John, when Jesus is on trial, we've read about this. He's before Pilate. Pilate, are you interested in finding out who the real king is? What question has God dealt you? What, what, where are you in this wrestling match where your view of what happens in this reality is intersect with a living God who is active and it, it's created sort of like shrapnel confusion and questions. And I, and I wonder what question you might have that you're wrestling with. That you might actually be projecting towards God and he says, OK, let's think together, let's reason together with your question." That's what happened to me in 1986. In 1985, I graduated from Furman University, and in in the summer of 1986 was a collision point. My understanding of my horizontal reality was having a massive collision with an active and living God. And I was asking this question Who is trustworthy? Or what is trustworthy? That's the question. And I kept looking at God saying, Who's trustworthy? And thankfully He just said, Good question, Paul. Let's reason together. Who's trustworthy, Paul? Are you trustworthy, Paul? I knew the answer to that. No. I mean, I I had... A book of failings that I had a lot of empty pages still left to be written on. So I knew I wasn't trustworthy. How about relationships? Paul, are relationships trustworthy? And here I am in 1986 watching my mother in the last few weeks of her life dying of cancer. And I was saying, Well, well she's trustworthy, but this relationship's going to come to a crashing end. And then what am I left with? Well, okay, who's trustworthy? You're not trustworthy. Relationships have an ability to just to come to a crashing in or unravel on you. Who else or what else is trustworthy? How about your college education? I mean, you graduated from the finest university, Furman University. I mean, if you can't go to Furman, you end up going to an ACC school. So, I mean, you know, here you are. You've got your degree. You've got it here. Is that trustworthy? Can you put everything into that? And here I am in the summer of 1986. I'm living in a 10-foot-wide mobile home. It's sandwiched between a Green Hess gas station and a country-western music bar called the Wagon Wheel. And so I'm in the middle in this 10-foot-wide trailer held together by insects. And I'm thinking... I'm sure my parents thought, what a tra- career trajectory for our son who just graduated from Furman. Nancy, who I was dating at that point, I'm sure she was saying, boy, I have really hitched my wagon to a shooting star. <laughs> wow, this is exciting. Is your college education, Paul. Is it trustworthy? Is it paying off for you right now? He kept drilling me down. Tell me what you think's going to last forever. Who's going to last forever? Who's going to be there in the end? Who could conquer death? You see, the questions led me to Himself. And He's just leading me down this path to Himself. I realized there's just nothing else on earth, including myself, that I could really trust. So there had to be something or someone else else outside of my reality, and in this little ten-foot-wide trailer, a massive collision was taking place between Paul's understanding of what's happening on a horizontal level and what's happening with an active and living God intersecting my life. What kind of question is God asking you? What is it you're wrestling with? I mean, if this happens in your life, it's just going to be a massive collision and there's going to be questions and confusion. And what kind of question are you dealing with? Or maybe what kind of question are you putting at bay? You're saying, I just don't want to try to answer or figure out that question. Well, the collision causes a question. It causes some confusion. You see in verse 12, Mary Mary is seeing things, but she's not quite able to really see it. She, In verse 12, she looks into the tomb. Remember that? She's looking into the tomb, maybe sort of peering in one more time, saying, you know, I looked in once and I didn't see anybody. You know, maybe I just didn't get it. And so she's looking in again. And what is it she sees? The angels are sitting down on some kind of ledge, some kind of seat that they would put the dead body on. And there's an angel at one end of the seat, and there's an angel at the other end of the seat. And in between is what? The burial cloth, the bloody burial cloth of Jesus. And she's looking in, and then she doesn't see it. What, what, what is she meant to see right here? Think. She looks into this tomb, and what does she see? She sees a seat. And in each end of a seat is an angel. And on the seat is a bloody cloth. What is it she's supposed to be seeing? The mercy seat. In the Old Testament. You know this. Exodus chapter 25. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. These two cherubim. These angels that are pointing in towards this seat. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards each other, and place the cover on top of the ark and put, it in, put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. And then this is what God says, there at that seat, that's where I'm going to meet with you. You see what Mary is supposed to see? Mary, this is where I'm going to meet with you. If anybody wants to meet with God, this is the place, this empty tomb. And remember in Leviticus chapter 16, this is what's supposed to happen once a year when the high priest goes in to where this Ark of the Covenant is. Aaron, the high priest, shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. He shall sprinkle on it, on the atonement cover, And in front of it. And with this blood he will make atonement for the most holy place. Because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been. So the high priest enters in. He spreads blood. Not his own. The blood of a goat. He spreads it on the seat. And he comes out and he tells the people. Whatever your sins have been. They've been atoned for. Mary, you see, look, open your eyes. What are, you, what are you supposed to be seeing here? Whose blood now is on this seat? Whatever your sins, Mary, now forever and eternally have been atoned for. And yet Mary, she looks at this and she, she can't see it. So she's weeping instead of rejoicing. Why, why are you weeping, Mary? I mean, if you could just see, you wouldn't be weeping. You'd be rejoicing. And then secondly, in her confusion, she looks at Jesus and what? What happens? She supposes that he's a gardener. I don't know if you know of this uh, famous preacher from the 19th century. His name is Charles Spurgeon. But Spurgeon would take a phrase and he'd create a whole long sermon about one phrase. And so he did a sermon called Supposing That He Was a Gardener, 15 pages long. I read it this week. One phrase. And I can tell you when you got finished with the sermon, you knew exactly what the sermon was about. That Mary supposed that Jesus was a gardener. And he just went on and on about this. And this was the opening part of this sermon. We will once follow a saint. This is Mary. We will once follow a saint in her mistaken track. And yet, we shall find ourselves going the right way. The image, the image of him being a gardener, is far from being unnatural and pregnant with useful teaching. A couple of points that he makes. What was the job of the first Adam? To be a gardener, to to take care of the gardener. He was to work and take care of the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was a kind of a gardener who began in a garden and yet brought forth death. And he ended in a graveyard. Mary sees the second Adam, who is also a kind of a gardener. And where does this gardener begin? He begins in a graveyard. And what does he bring forth? Life. He, he's turning it all around all the things that the first Adam had, had messed up. He's coming in and saying, I'm going to start at the lowest point and I'm going to bring out life. The first Adam allowed a serpent into the garden. Why didn't he just cut his head off right at that point? Well, what does he do? He allows a serpent to have a chat with his wife. The second Adam. What does the second Adam do? It says in Genesis, He crushes His head. He crushes His head on the cross. So Mary wasn't that far off supposing that Jesus was a gardener, but she just couldn't see it. She she just couldn't see the reality of what was happening at the scene. She comes across the scene and she steps across the tape and yet she's just not quite able to see it for herself. And so in verse 16, there's a point of clarity. And the point of clarity is when Jesus looks at Mary and says her name. Mary. You see, Mary was passionate. Mary was seeking. But Mary couldn't see. No matter how passionate you are, no matter how seeking you are, you can't see until God does something first. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that nobody can boast. Mary's not going to go back and say, I got it. I figured it out. Come and see. It's like a puzzle. See if you can figure it out. No, Mary got figured out. Jesus came into Mary's life and said, Mary, I'm figuring you out. I found you. And she's going, yes, I see it. Thank you for calling my name. Jesus Christ in 1986 said, Paul. Now, not quite like this. You know, if you're a Southern Baptist, you really like Mary. I was an old Southern Baptist, so I can say this. Because you, if, you if you had Mary's testimony, what would Mary say? Early in the morning, on a Sunday, I met the Lord, it was unmistakable, I gave my life to Christ. And you'd go, Amen, love that testimony. But that doesn't happen to most people, does it? Because the reason we backed up and read chapter 19 of Nicodemus, where's the first time Nicodemus encounters Jesus? Chapter 3 you got some three years of Nicodemus sort of wandering around, rolling around with this question. What did he mean, I've got to be born again? He, Jesus just planted this question. And now it's been like a, a slow-moving bomb that's exploding in my life. And finally, in chapter 19, he comes with Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple. And you get this sense that he's saying, I'm, I'm hearing him call my name. After all these many years. So so whether you can recount a particular point. Or maybe you can just say. You know over the last year or two years. I just heard my name. Have you left everything like Mary. And dropped and grabbed hold of Jesus. Or is there still something you've got to have? Something you're still hoping, Oh, I want Jesus, but I've got to have this too. Finally, we get to this last part, this commission. Again, we're not surprised at how things happen here because this is the way it happens all over the Bible. As soon as Mary's eyes are open, she's intended to go tell somebody else. Matthew 28 is the great commission for the disciples. Matt, Mark chapter 5. Remember the demoniac? I love this story. Jesus is getting, uh, they go across uh, Galilee. Remember the big storm brews up. The disciples say, you know, don't you care about us? They find Jesus sleeping. You know, be still. Where's your faith? Great sermon. I won't give it to you right now. But then they get to the other side. And in the text, it just says, and Jesus got out of the boat. never says the disciples got out of the boat. And I just picture the disciples in the boat and a naked man screaming down a hill from a graveyard going, yeah! And them just going, Jesus, we're leaving you. And, you you know, you can walk on water. I'm sure you can get back. But we are not getting out. We are not facing this kind of chaos in somebody's life. You do it. Well, Jesus faces it down. And then when they're ready to leave, the demoniac wants to come back with Jesus. Can I get in the boat? What does he say? You go back to your own town. You tell people what happened. You You remember when Jesus meets the woman at the well? She comes with her empty bucket. Very neat little phrase in there. And then she leaves. Once Once she sees, when Jesus says, I am he. I'm the person you've been looking for. The lights come on. And she leaves her bucket behind. What she came for, she doesn't need anymore because she found something else. And what does she do? She goes back to her town. And I love what she does. She comes to these people and she says, could this be the Christ? You see what she does? She doesn't do this. She just walks up beside somebody and says, look, my life's been changed. Could this be real? She's just planting a question. And she's going to let it sit with somebody and let them watch her life and say, is it possible that somebody really came out of the tomb? See, here's my guess. If you're a believer here, God has put you in a path, whether you've seen it or not, to intersect somebody else's life who doesn't see. And my challenge for you, some of you here last year were not Christians. And this commission applies to you as it does to me. Who who might be God calling you to cross paths with? And just come alongside and say, is it possible? Could it be? And just plant a question and just pray for a divine intersection. That's all you can do. You can't make it happen. You just walk alongside people and you say, Is it possible? What are your questions? Let's see if we can reason together. Some of you have people that you could think of right now. And just for some reason you've been too afraid to say it. I urge you, I challenge you. Don't let those opportunities go by. Sit down. Try to reason together. If the person just wants to walk away, then they walk away. When Mary came back to the disciples, what did the disciples first say? You're crazy. You're a lunatic. You're acting like you used to act way back then. And what did she say? Hey, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Let's pray together. Jesus, we've stepped.